Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Isaiah 9, or you can tune your devices to a similar place. If uh, the Bible is new to you and it's not a book you're familiar with or have or, or know how to get around, no worries. You can follow along on the screens. We'll have everything you need up there. And also, we'd love to put a Bible in your hands. And if you need some guidance on what to do with it, we would actually love to walk you through that process as much as, uh, as, much as we can today. So see us afterwards for that. That's uh, in Isaiah is where we're going to be camping out. He's one of the prophets. And uh, before we get to that, uh, I know the bags are being passed, so we'll give that time to happen. But I wanted to kind of be begin this portion of our time this morning with uh, just a moment of quiet. This is a season when things are supposed to slow down, but they typically speed up. And so I'm just going to give some space for you to breathe and center yourself. And then after a moment, I'll say a prayer and we'll continue together. Father God, we acknowledge your presence in the room, and we ask that out of the quiet stillness you would speak. As we open up the Bible, help us to open up our hearts. We, um, we want to do, you to do your part in, in uh, opening our minds and hearts to what you'd have us here, and, and we want your help to do our part. And I pray, God, that uh, we would be blessed with some truth and that we would, um, that we would see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Somebody once said that the one point of Christian doctrine that everyone would agree with is our belief that the world is not as it should be. I originally planned to start this message by talking about how 2015 has kind of been a year of extremes and highlighting some of the high highs and some of the low lows. And I knew that I could think of the low lows just off the top of my head, and I figured I'd do a little research and, and remember some of the great things that have happened in our world, and we'll look at the contrast between the two. And so I started looking for these wonderful stories, and I got to be honest, it was harder than I thought. It's not that 2015 has been all bad, and I'd imagine for many of us, when we look back at the last 11 and a half months, we say, ah, it's been, been a pretty good time for us. But if you zoom out and look at the world as a whole, the picture is bleak. It is not very encouraging. Way back in January, a series of massacres in Nigeria and surrounding villages by Boko Haram killed more than 2,000 people. In February, a branch of ISIS uh, in Libya came in and beheaded about a dozen Egyptian Christians. In March, uh, a plane, an Airbus, crashed into the French Alps, killing all 150 people on board. In April, another 150 people, or 148 to be exact, lost their lives in Kenya. Most of them students, almost all of them Christians, in a mass shooting that took place there. In both April and May, massive earthquakes hit Nepal which caused the deaths of over 9,200 9, people in Nepal, India, China, and Bangladesh, the surrounding areas. 
In June, the next month, ISIS claimed responsibility for four attacks around the world during the month of Ramadan that killed many uh, car bombers, suicide bombers, mass shootings, these kinds of things. In, in July, on July 1st, Greece became the first advanced economy to default on a payment to the International Monetary Fund in that institution's 71-year history. That's only half the year. And we could probably stop there, though I've said nothing about Paris, racial tension, police tension, or San Bernardino. And closer to home, I've just noticed over the past few months that it feels like a lot of people in this room have lost those they've loved or who have had to fight to stay alive and to stay afloat. Closer to home, I, I, I was talking to uh, I was talking to one of I was talking to the North Park Santa Claus this morning, and he was telling me. Um, that uh, yesterday he was, he was uh, you know, greeting the children as, as he does, and, and his, his, they come up, they sit on his lap, he puts an elf hat on their head, says, what do you want for Christmas? And this little girl came up, probably four or five years old, and she hopped up on his lap, and, and uh, he put the elf hat up on her, on her head and said, what do you want for Christmas? And this little, little four-year-old leaned in and said, can you do something about my grandma's cancer? Yeah. And you hear those kind of things or you experience those kind of things and you realize the world is not what it's supposed to be. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. And sometimes things don't work the way they're supposed to because of our own decisions, because we, we know what to do, but we don't do it, or we know what not to do, but we do it. And so uh, planes flash and cra- crash into buildings and, and marriages disintegrate before our eyes and half the world goes hungry. But, but sometimes things don't work the way they're supposed to because... Well, I don't know. Things just don't always work the way they're supposed to. Fires destroy and hurricanes devastate and people get sick and babies die. And just about the only thing we can say about the world we live in is that the world we live in is broken. And in the Old Testament, the people of God had a word to describe this reality. It's the Hebrew word tohu. And it means like a disorder or madness or chaos. It's like, a, it's like a piece of clay that's in an unformed lump. It's not anything yet. Or it's like a house that is partially built. You can see that it's supposed to be something, but it's not what it's supposed to be. And it's just sort of been abandoned in its current state. This word means that there are forces in our world that, that keep things from happening the way they should. Forces like wind and water and fire, forces like hatred and selfishness and greed. And unfortunately, if there is a season when we look around our world and often look in our own lives and realize that we see a little too much chaos and madness and disorder, it's Christmas. Did you know that during the holidays, uh, a lot of counseling centers and depression hotlines report that calls rise by at least 10%, people just sad and wanting to talk? Not too long ago, the BBC did a survey, and among the people that they surveyed, they found that 60% said that the Christmas holiday season leaves them more isolated than they were before, and that's including those that spend time with family and close friends. When asked if, uh, if you're sad going into the holidays, do the holidays make it, mer- make it worse, over 55% said yes, and a full quarter of those who responded said that in a perfect world, if they had their preference, they'd fall asleep on December 23rd and not wake up till January 2nd, till it was all just over. Apparently, there's nothing like the holiday season to force us to face the fact that life is not as joyful and triumphant as we believe it's supposed to be. And many of us can't even come close to enjoying the holiday season. It's all we can do to endure it. We would turn on the TV and we see storybook families and and peace on earth, nothing but laughter and smiles, comfort and joy. But inside, we feel like it's always winter but never Christmas. 
And what happens when you look into the mirror and you see a lonely face or empty arms or a broken heart? What happens when you're just kind of hoping to survive the next couple of weeks when every time somebody cheerily says, Merry Christmas, you just kind of wince because you can't imagine how you could celebrate joy in a season of such sadness and pain. And I don't, I don't mean to be a downer this morning, but I can testify from personal experience that holidays can be hard. This past Thanksgiving uh, marks the eight-year anniversary of the day my wife Beth and I lost our first child. It was in the fall of 2007, and it, it, was, it was an exciting time in, in our home. It was, it, was, it was a fun season in, in our family. Beth and I had been married for probably four, about four years at that point, and I had just finished up grad school, and we, we were ready to start a family. Like, it's always something that we had talked about. We both came from broken situations, and so the redeeming of our stories was a big part of what brought us together. And even as a young guy, I thought a lot about, I, I want to be a good dad. I want to be able to say when I'm dying that I I had kids and and I loved them well and it was just something we were real passionate about and so we started trying and we got pregnant and it was great. I mean, every day was a new adventure. We were growing closer to each other and in the meantime, a lot of other things in our lives, both small and good, were just kind of happening all around us and I remember a good friend of mine said to me one day, man, it just seems like you've got everything going for you, huh? And I said, do not say that. (laughs) That's what people say before everything falls apart. And then about a week later, it was the night before Thanksgiving, and some things started happening in my wife's body that were concerning. And and we knew not to panic. Sometimes things happen during a pregnancy, and we called some friends, and they said, you probably just need to go to sleep and see how you feel in the morning. And so we did. Woke up the next morning, something st- still, still didn't feel right, and so it's Thanksgiving Day, but we drove over to the urgent care about 6 a.m. and checked ourselves in, and they took some tests, and we waited. Four hours, we waited. After about four hours, they came out to us and said, we really can't find anything. You probably ought to just go home, enjoy the weekend, and check in with your doctor on Monday. But I was actually scheduled to leave the country the next day, and we were scared. So there's no way we were just going to go home and enjoy the weekend. And so we drove across town to the ER, checked ourselves in, ran the ultrasound, ran the EKG, and we waited. We tried to watch football and, and not think about what might actually be happening. And then six hours after we walked into the ER, 10 hours after our Thanksgiving day began, the doctor walked into the room and I'll never forget what he said. He said, I don't have any good news from the ultrasound. We couldn't find a heartbeat. It looks like your baby has died. And I would never compare... um, my pain in that moment to those of you who have known loved ones and, and lost them, but that was my child. And now my, my child was gone. I, I, I held my bride and we, we, just, we just wept. And there are moments in life when you realize things are not as they should be. And Christmas 2007 was rough. And then a few months later, we decided we were going to try again. It's amazing how common this is. And so we knew this isn't the end of the story. And so we tried again. We got pregnant again and, and, uh, you know, started to kind of move forward in the process. And we had an appointment on Memorial Day and discovered on that day that we lost a second child. Really, God, today? 
And this one cut a little deeper, and you start to worry, and you start to fear. And it took us a a long time to even start the conversation. And about a year, the next spring came around, and we worked up the courage to go for it again. And so we we got pregnant again, and actually, it was going really well. Uh, Days were becoming weeks. Weeks were becoming months. And we'd had a couple of appointments, and we had this ultrasound scheduled for Good Friday, the day when we celebrate the death of Jesus for our salvation. And I'm like, man, I can hear myself preaching this sermon, that on the day when God turned these tears into joy and turned this moment of death into life, that he did the same for us. But I never got to preach that sermon because on Good Friday, for the third time, we found out that we would never get to meet this child that we had worked so hard to love. And if there was ever a time when we needed to know that tohu, disorder, chaos, was not the last word, it was then. I'm not trying to say, woe is me, my life is so hard. I love my life. I love my kids. We've got two now. It's great. I'm just saying, I know what it's like to walk outside and look at, look at the sky and say, what's going on up there? And do you see what's going on down here? Where can a man find some peace? Yeah, the holidays can be hard. And if there's ever a time when we need to know that tohu is not the last word, it is always now. And the good news is that tohu is not, in fact, the last word. In the Old Testament, the people of God had another word to describe the opposite of tohu, the opposite of chaos and sickness and disorder. And that word is shalom. Shalom is is everything that Tohu is not, is wholeness, order, health, peace. Now, on the very first page of the Bible, we discovered that this story is going to be one of tension between Tohu and Shalom. The Bible opens up in Genesis at the very top, and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. And that phrase, formless and void, in the Hebrew is literally tohu vabohu. It was formless and empty. It was chaotic. It was just this jumbled mess. And the rest of Genesis 1 tells about a God who brings order out of the chaos, who brings shalom out of the tohu, who brings madness into peace and orders the world in such a way that life can continue. And in the Hebrew mind, shalom became a critical word. It was a greeting, and they wouldn't just say shalom. They would say shalom. It was a loud greeting because it was a word that said everything is good. The bills are paid. The peace treaties are signed. This word is a picture of everything gone right, everything in its place, and all people as they should be. And if I could just be honest with you, every year around this time, I think the same thing. All I want for Christmas is shalom. All I want for Christmas is some peace. You know what I mean? I just want unborn babies to be back in their mama's wombs where they belong. I want health and justice and life. I want salvation for the lost and freedom for the captives and sight for the blind and relief for the brokenhearted. I want husbands and wives to love each other, mothers and sons to respect one another, and fathers and daughters to adore each other. All I want for Christmas is shalom. All I want for Christmas is some peace. I want the fighting to cease. Like you, I dream. I dream of the end of racism and classism and sexism, hatred and selfishness and greed. I deeply desire hope and joy and rest. All I want for Christmas is shalom. All I want for Christmas is some peace. Don't you? And it just so happens that in Isaiah, the people of God are promised a sar shalom, a prince of peace. They're promised that this is coming. You know, Isaiah's time was not all that different than our own. 
It was a world that Isaiah looked at, and it was a mess. Let's look again at the, the chapter before. Take a look at uh, verse uh, 21 and 22 from chapter 8. Just before our text today, Isaiah says this about his world. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Sounds a lot like Tohu to me. And yet Isaiah's whole point is that this is not the last word, that even in a time when everything's fallen apart, even in a time when God's people are unfaithful, that's what was going on then, even in a time like that, God himself is faithful. And the primary text I want to look at starts in the very next verse. It's chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Let's read along. Nevertheless, he starts. What a good word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What Isaiah is saying is that one day God will send his people a king and he will sit on the throne and he will make things right. He's going to restore shalom to a world in which we only always see too much of the opposite. And from this point, we could go about a dozen different directions from this text. There's a lot going on in here. We could talk about a lot of different things. We could talk about how Jesus is light into darkness. You heard that theme right there. We could talk about how Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, provides wisdom for our daily decisions. That would be a profitable thing to discuss. But for right now, I'd like to focus us on something I think is more fundamental, more basic, and that I think encapsulates the heartbeat of this entire prophecy, and it is the idea that where God is, there is shalom, where Jesus is, there is peace. Make no mistake, I'm not talking about some sort of general human feeling that is available to everyone, supposedly, no matter what you believe in, or no matter who you worship, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about some, some sort of peace that comes from within. This is not me finding my inner self. This is not me eliminating desire. This is not me achieving my dreams. No, I'm talking about the peace that comes only from knowing Jesus and living in his invisible but very real presence every day. I got to tell you, when I've thought about this truth where Jesus is, there is peace, this message was a tough one for me. And not because what we're talking about is heavy. That's fine. That, that's what we do. But it's because I just didn't know where to go next. I mean, there are dozens of passages of Scripture that I would love to open up together just to show you how true this is. We could go to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing that I need. 
And because you're with me, I won't be afraid even when I walk through the darkest valleys. We could go to Psalm 46, which ends with that statement, be still and know that I am God. Love that statement. I also love how the psalm begins, that God is our refuge and ever-present help in times of trouble. And therefore, we won't fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. There's a reason for our calm. We could go to Philippians 4.13. Where Paul says, I know the secret to being content in every circumstance. I can do all things through the one who gives me strength. Not I can achieve my dreams, but I can be okay even if they go unachieved. So many places we can go. Most of them are going to have to wait for another time. For now, I want to talk to you about one of the craziest days from the life of Jesus. (laughs) He had a few. This is probably the third craziest one after the day of his death and the day of his resurrection. This day was nuts, though, and it all happened so far as we can tell, one after another. There's these series of stories told in Mark chapter 4 and 5, that, which starts on a boat. You probably know this one, at least some of you. It starts on a boat, and Jesus is, is well, he's tired. He and his disciples have been doing all sorts of things. They've gone public, and everybody's clamoring around him for his attention. Some people don't like him. Some people want to know more. Others love him. And he's like, we got to get away, guys. So he gets in a boat, and they cross the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is exhausted, We know this because at a certain point he went down below and he lay down on a cushion in the stern of the ship and took a a nap, fell asleep. And so Peter and the guys are up top and Peter and Andrew and James and John, four of his close followers and friends were fishermen. And so they're going along and they're like, Jesus, we got this. You just, you just get your sleep, man. It's all good. And so they're out there and the wind starts to blow and the waves start to rock. And they're like, no big deal. We've been doing this our whole lives. We've literally moved across this body of water hundreds of times. And then the wind picks up and the water goes and they're like, it's all good. Don't worry. We're fine. The non-fishermen are going, you guys sure? And they're going, we're sure. It gets even worse, and now Peter is the only one saying, really, it's okay. And then all of a sudden, Peter's like, it's not okay. And so they go down, and they shake Jesus awake, and they say, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus just looks at him like this, is how I think he looked at him. And he got up, and he walked up to the top, and he looked out at the water, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. And the water was calm, because where Jesus is, there is peace. Now, the text tells us that the disciples were afraid of the storm, but they were terrified of Jesus. (laughs) And the rest of the trip on the boat was fairly uneventful comparatively, and they worked their way across to the other side of the land, and the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, that was crazy, but now we get a break. Now we can chill out for a bit. No, not so much. Because as soon as they dock the boat, they look up and there's this guy running straight at him. A lot bigger than me, naked, bleeding. He's got shackles on his arm, but he's popped the chain. And he is screaming at the top of his lungs because he's not happy to see Jesus. And long story short, there's this encounter between Jesus and this man who's filled with thousands and thousands of demons. He is possessed to no end. And so there's this encounter, but there's no doubt from the start who's in charge. And the demons beg for mercy, and Jesus sends them away. And then when the people come back out to see this man that they had cast away to the tombs, and they notice that he's sitting there, he's in his right mind, he's dressed, and all is well, they're afraid. Apparently, shalom is scary because they tell Jesus, please leave. And this guy says, can we go with you? Can I go with you? And Jesus is like, no, I need you to stay here. I need you to go back to your home, back to your family, and tell them what the Lord has done for you because I need this side of the lake to know that where I am, there is peace. And then Jesus says to his disciples, all right, let's get back in the boat and go across again. And they're like, you want us to do what? (laughs) And they get in the boat and they go across and fairly tame trip, and they get to the other side, and there's crowds just waiting for them, waiting for Jesus. 
And they're walking through these crowds, and it's kind of like when you're leaving a football stadium and there's just people all around, and there's just people everywhere, and nobody notices that this one lady comes up from the side. And she's not supposed to be there, so she's being kind of sneaky about it. And the reason she's not supposed to be there is because for the last 12 years, she's had a bleeding issue. She's had a menstrual issue. And not only has she had to live with over a decade of the physical pain and cramping and discomfort that this brought, she spent all her money trying to get help from the doctors. Nobody could do anything. She's also had to live with the social shame because nobody was allowed to come near her. Nobody was allowed to touch her. She was actually supposed to walk around and say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, so that everybody would know to keep their distance because if you got close to her and if you touched her or she touched you, you would be unclean and you wouldn't be able to go to church to worship God. So for 12 years, she'd not been touched in any way. She'd not been demonstrated kindness. She had been an outcast and so she shows up and she's looking at Jesus because she's heard the stories and she's got this hope that maybe he can do something. And she figures it's probably wishful thinking, but it's my only option. And so she works her way through the crowd and she reaches out and she grabs hold of the edge of his cloak. And as soon as she touches his clothing, she feels her body tingle and the bleeding stops. And she's afraid. And she cowers because Jesus stops and he looks at his disciples and he says, who touched me? And they're like, um, you're walking through a crowd of people, a lot of people touching you, Jesus. And he says, no, I just felt power go out from me. Who touched me? And he's scanning the crowd, making eye contact with every person he sees. And then he locks in on her. And he says, it was you. And she kneels down and she puts her head down because she's afraid that she's in trouble because she touched him and it worked, but she doesn't know what to do. And then he lifts her up and you know what he says to her? He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I mean, Jesus repeatedly turning tohu into shalom, turning brokenness into beauty. He takes this sea, this ancient symbol of chaos that is rebuking him, and he rebukes it, and he puts it to calm. He takes this, this man who's possessed by evil, and he frees him from him captivity. He takes this this woman who's been sick for over a decade and he puts her body back together again. And the next story is he goes to this little girl who's actually died and she's laying in the bed and he takes her by the hand and he says, little girl, arise. And she gets back up and gives her daddy a hug. Jesus turning tohu into shalom again and again and again because it's what he does. Because where he is, what was wrong is made right. Where he is, there is peace. Now, I want to be clear about what I am and am not saying. I'm not saying that if you come to Jesus and if you make him the Lord of your life, and if you believe in him, that all your problems are going to go away and all your dreams are going to come true. Not hardly. Now, we do look forward and hope to a day when he returns and finishes what he started, when justice wins, when shalom is the final word, and when we look around ourselves and say, all is restored, this is peace. We do look forward to that day, but in the meantime, we find it wherever he is. I am saying that if you know him, if you draw near to him, if you let him move in and take over, then you'll find yourself filled with a deep and abiding peace that passes, that transcends all understanding. The kind of peace that doesn't make sense given the situation, but only makes sense because he's here. We often think of peace as, you know, if this or that would stop, or if this thing was taken away, then everything would be better. Everything would be fine. I would be at peace. But peace is not found in the absence of pain or conflict. Peace is found in the presence of God. 
And the most interesting thing about any of us, it's not what presents we're going to get or give from under the tree. And it's not the people with whom we're going to spend these next couple of weeks. And it's not even the pain that we're trying to manage this season. The most interesting thing about us is that we find ourselves on this side of Christmas. It's what we believe actually took place in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. You see, on the first Christmas, it really is true that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord really did appear to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you, the angel said. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the good news of Christmas is not that we will get everything we want, but that we have been given God. And in Christ, God came to us. He is with us. He's here. May we receive shalom. And may we go in peace. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.